Every time I used to get a new piano piece growing up, I would like sit down at the piano and cry. And I would just be so scared of learning that piece. And I would think like, what if I never learn it? What if I work really hard at it and I still can't get it? What if I don't play it as well as this other person? I went to college planning to be a music therapist. That was always my goal from when I was really little. I knew I wanted to do something with music outside of performing. So when I went to Butler, they were working on this dual degree program with another school in Indy to do like a five-year thing where you would graduate with a degree in music therapy. And it never really ended up happening. I was just kind of ready to get out of Indy. About that same time, I had gotten involved with quite a few campus ministries and involved here at church playing on the worship team. I just kind of felt God asking me to consider calling Indy home. So it was during that time that I just started to feel called to ministry, but I had absolutely no idea what that would look like. I didn't know what, how do you, how do you like start in ministry? Where do you go? Like, how do you get qualified to do that? Music as a whole prepared me for ministry in a way that has only made sense recently. What makes a musician really great is just that process of being strategic about how you learn a piece, working on it section by section, just doing the next thing the next day until you get it. I think that that's informed my approach to ministry and that I could get really caught up in like the weight of what students bring in, what adults bring in, whatever I'm going through. I could get really fearful of like the whole picture. But instead, I think God just calls us to take that next faithful step and do what's right in front of us. I heard about the residency program and I thought that that would be a really good place to start. So I talked to some people on staff and prayed about it, talked to professors and friends that knew me from home and ended up applying for that. And I got denied the first time. And then they called back and they were like, we'd really like to find a spot for you here. Would you consider student ministry? As I went through the residency, I think that I just became a lot more confident in the call in my life and who God is and what his promises are to like, just help me take that next step. So now that I'm on the flip side of that residency, I have the opportunity to do that with the leaders and with the students here downtown. We have our team of adults that I get to pour into mostly, and then they're pouring into students. These guys are committed. They're here every week showing up and willing to get their hands dirty in the lives of students and all the crazy walks of life that happen in your seventh through 12th grade years. The mentorship that I got really informs the way that I lead now, and I'm still getting all that same mentorship from my team, and then I get to do the same for the people that I lead here. Well, I'm so appreciative of Natalie. Can we give it up for Natalie? She is a great, she's a great leader and uh, she serves at our downtown campus. And she uh, came through our leadership residency program 
uh, not long ago. And, uh, um, you know, last weekend uh, you heard Pastor Ryan talk about our vision lanes, which is our way of talking about getting in on what God is doing in our city, in our church, and around the world. And uh, one vision lane is vulnerable children, but the one that we're kind of sort of focused on today is leadership development. And we just believe that um, the world is uh, in shortage of, of good leaders. And so as a church, we wanna just invest into not just the leadership of our staff, but all of the leadership of everybody that uh, calls Traders Point home. We believe that there needs to be good leaders in the home and in the church and in the marketplace. And so one of our vision lanes is leadership development. We've got a Traders Point Leadership College that we're in the process of getting up uh, on its feet. Uh, we've got a leadership conference coming up in January. We're trying to produce content that would um, help train volunteers, staff coaches, because we want you to be a better leader, like right where you are. Now, that may not mean that you quit your job and join the residency program and go into full-time ministry. I don't even think that's true for the vast majority of those of you in the church. We need you to be a leader right where you are, in your home and in the marketplace. And so your generosity fuels all of that. Natalie is just one of many uh, of our leaders coming through that uh, program and uh, so excited to be able to share a bit of her story. Hey, uh, before we get rolling, I just want to uh, acknowledge something that uh, may be on your mind. Those of you that are joining us online or those of you at one of our physical campuses, we're so glad to have you. But um, Obviously, we've just been watching uh, cases spike and further restrictions kind of being placed around the state. And so you might have some questions just about what is the way forward for us as a church? And I just want you to know that uh, we wanna do everything within our power to create an opportunity, both physically and online, for us to connect with one another, for us to gather together as a church family. And uh, we are keeping a close eye on really two primary things as a leadership. We're looking at hospitalizations, in particular hospitalizations within the counties we have campuses and the percentage of transmission, uh, particularly within the counties we have campuses. And we are talking to a lot of our medical professionals that are a part of our church family, as well as other governing authorities. And we would just ask for your prayer. This is not an easy thing to navigate. Uh, I've not, I don't have any training for it. It's kind of like on the fly. And so there uh, feels like whatever decision I make, I'm gonna disappoint somebody. And so I just wanna ask for your prayers as a church family, let's come together. Uh, if you remember the analogy I gave a couple months ago when we first started physically regathering, said it's sort of like being in a raft in whitewater. And right now, more than ever, as we pass through the eye of this thing, we need each other. Would you not agree? We just need to come together. We need to pray. We need to all be pulling our weight. And uh, we would just cover your prayers because we wanna make the right decisions. And uh, the only thing that would really cause us to uh, temporarily pause physical gatherings would be hospitalizations and percentage of transmission. And so we wanna ask everybody at all of our physical campuses to do their part. Uh, we wanna continue to gather physically. Um, so we wanna ask you to wear face covering at all times and just be mindful of distancing um, because we are more than just physical beings. We are spiritual and emotional beings. And right now, uh, not just the cases of the virus are on the rise, but cases of anxiety, mental health, depression, all that's on the rise. And we deal with that at Christmas anyway, without a pandemic. And so more than ever, we need to gather together as a church family, but as safely and responsibly as we can, all right? Well, I am uh, really excited about uh, this uh, two-part series of messages that we're starting today called Flow. And uh, this is uh, dealing with uh, a topic and an issue that touches every single one of us, especially during this particular time of the year. And that's the topic of personal finances. And, and more specifically than that, it is having peace 
when it comes to personal finances. So I got a question for you. Those of you gathered with us physically, those of you online, how many of you can remember the first job that you ever had? Any of you remember that? Was it a good job? Like, was it, are you still doing the same job that you got when you first started? Um, uh, hopefully not, because first jobs, I think, are good for all kinds of reasons. They, they help you, first of all, uh, figure out that, like, you need to stay in school, that uh, this isn't what you want to do for the rest of your life. It helps you develop a good work ethic. I remember the, the first uh, job that I ever had, it was uh, right after, it was between my uh, eighth and ninth grade year, and uh, I started working for a trucking company, and my job was to break freight. And basically what that meant was I would show up at the loading dock before the sun came up and all these semi-trucks would back up to the dock and I would unload the semis, reorganize uh, the packages and then reload it into the local trucks going to the local stores. It was a hot job. It was a, a heavy job. Uh, it worked with lots of other colorful personalities. And uh, I remember the very first paycheck that I got. I was so excited because it was all official. Like it had my, my name typed out in an envelope. And I was so excited until I opened it up and I looked at it and I was like, I'm not quite sure that all of that effort was worth that. And who is FICA anyway? And what are they doing with all my money? And I remember going home and showing it to my mom and my dad and they looked at it and, and my dad kind of smirked and he said a phrase that I've heard over and over and over since then. And you probably have too. In fact, you could probably finish the phrase with me. Easy come easy go. And that's sort of what happens with the money that we earn over our lifetime. So here's how I want you to think about this as we get into this today is from the very first job that you ever had, whether it was bagging groceries or babysitting, all the way to the very last job that you have before you retire one day, hopefully, or maybe you've already retired, is that uh, money comes into our lives and then it goes back out again. In fact, there's really only five things, if we were to break this down, that you can do with money. You can earn it, you can save and invest it, you can give it, you can spend it, and you can enjoy it. Pretty much everything that you can do with money specifically falls into one of those five general categories. And so money flows into our lives as we earn it, or maybe you receive an inheritance of some kind. And then eventually it will flow back out of our lives, but it always leaves a mark. It always shapes our hearts in some way. In fact, if you've ever uh, looked at the rocks at the bottom of a creek bed, you can see that they're smooth, that they've been shaped into certain forms due to the flow of the water over time. And so during our whole earnings life, as money flows in and as it flows out, it's shaping our heart, whether you recognize it or not. The question is, is when am I going to be intentional about it? When am I going to be intentional about the way that money shapes my heart? And in the passage that we're going to look at here in just a few minutes from Luke chapter 12, I want to set some stuff up first. But this is essentially what Jesus is driving at, is he's going to say that our hearts always follow our money. It's never the other way around. We, we, our money doesn't follow after our heart. Our heart follows after our money. So we've got to intentionally send our money to where we want our heart to be. We need to handle money the way that we want our heart to be shaped. Here's another way of saying it, that money is a really great servant. It can serve you well if you manage it well, but it is a horrible master. And oftentimes we think we can control it, but it can so easily control us. And we can so easily stress over it, especially given the kind of year that 2020 has been 
and with Christmas expenses just right around the corner. And we don't often like to admit it, but money has the power to affect our mood and disposition. Now, depending upon how you're wired, for some of us, maybe more than, than others. For me, I'll just go ahead and just be openly confess this. This is an area of my life where I can have a great amount of strength in because I, I happen to just want to manage money well and budget and plan and, and think about it, but it can so easily turn into stress. And, and there have been plenty of times in my life where I would say, no, 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 I'm just, I'm just planning. I'm just budgeting. And really in reality, I'm trying to control it too much. I'm worrying over it. I'm stressing over it. I'm reminded over this uh, uh, every time I take my family to Disney. And here we are like in this amazement amusement park, having the time of our lives, theoretically. And, uh, but in the back of my mind, like I'm stressing out. Like here we are like, um, you know, on these rides and we're eating all this great food. But every time I hand my credit card to Mickey, I panic. Or every time I sit there and think to myself, is it really worth taking out a second mortgage on the house so that my daughters can have breakfast with some other girls, not much older than them, dressed up as princesses so that they can get their little book signed? And, and I, I start to panic. Have you ever have that imaginary uh, amount in your bank account that as long as you check your bank account balance and it's over that, you're good. But as soon as it drops below that, you start to panic. And if I'm once again being very honest, this happens to me way more than just when I'm at Disney. This happens in life. Like every time the transmission goes out or the electric bill comes due or with college expenses looming, it's easy to just get stressed out over money. So easy to put our trust in money in the false sense of security that it brings. And so we think if we could just have an amount and you might even just think about that to yourself right now. Like if you could make X amount, then you're like, man, I would have no more problems ever. Or if I just had this amount in the bank. In fact, I was doing a, a, a read not long ago about some people said that what they would do for a million dollars, 42% said that they would be willing to spend time in jail, never see their best friend ever again, or move permanently to a foreign country for a million dollars. And you know what? I would imagine that there's a number of you listening to this or watching online that just said to yourself, not me, not me. Like I don't care if it's $2 million or a billion dollars, I wouldn't do any of that. And the reason why is, be, is the reason why you're get, sort of giving yourself a pass for this sermon or this sermon series is because you would say, well, I don't even like money. I don't even like to think about money. Like I don't do, I'm not the one that does the budgeting in our family. Like I, this is why I don't like money. All this talk about it, all this stress, I'd rather not. And you know what? That very well may be true. You may not be sort of wired up that way. And yet I still want you to know that it is still shaping your heart, whether you realize it or not, that you actually can't get through life without it. We all, we, we need money, like it is a necessity to pay some bills and to provide for our family. But right now, what I want you to see, what, and here's the kind of the continuum. You may put yourself in one of these two categories. You say like, I don't like money at all, or maybe I like money too much and only you can answer that. You gotta be really honest with yourself. But regardless of where you fall on that, it's still shaping your heart. And God has still asked you to apply some of his principles found in his word, because both of those things are unhealthy extremes. And God wants us to, our money, to be a servant rather than a master, which means we need to be, and here's the word, proactive. Proactive and we need to premeditate 
how we are going to handle these finances as they flow into our lives so that they don't become more important than they really should be. In fact, I want to just give you just a, a short little example of this. In the wisdom literature of the Bible in Proverbs 13, it says this, good people leave an inheritance to their grandchildren. So what that means is that in order for that to happen, you've got to plan wisely. You've got to budget wisely. Now here's what that, I'm not ready for that yet if you could go back. Uh, Proverbs 13, if we could go back, there we go. So what that means is, is that uh, in order for this to happen, like you can't just be haphazard with money. You can't just spend it like water. You can't just, uh, um, you, you can't ever save and invest it. Now here's also what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that you've made your grandchildren's life easy. It doesn't mean you're leaving them a million dollars. It doesn't mean that uh, you're, you're taking all of their financial stress away. No, it simply means this. You're actually sending a message that is far more than the amount of money. You're actually saying, no, we've actually handled money wisely. We made money a servant rather than a master. And so now I'm ready for the next slide. We earn it honestly in order for that to happen. We save and invest it gradually. We give it generously, we spend it wisely, we enjoy it carefully. This right here, I would say encapsulates the principles that is found in God's word about money management, which I'm going to unpack a little bit uh, further here in just a minute. And I think that this is one of the reasons why Jesus teaches on the subject of money and material possessions more than any other subject. Were you aware of that? Did you know that Jesus taught on the subject of money? Now I said money, not giving. Those are different things. He taught on the subject of money more than love and forgiveness combined. In fact, there are 2,350 verses that deal with it. 16 of his 38 parables address it. There are over 800 verses dealing with a wide variety of financial topics, including planning, budgeting, saving, investing, and debt. And the reason why is that Jesus knows that money oftentimes is the chief competition for God on the throne of our hearts. But it's even more than that. You see, your financial health, whatever that looks like right now, your financial health is a lagging indicator of your spiritual and emotional health. And putting God first in your finances. You ever heard somebody say that to you? Well, you need to put God first in your finances. You're like, okay, well, what does that mean? And how do I do it? And I would say putting God first in your finances is inviting him into your finances, which means you take those five principles and you incorporate them into the way that you think about and the way that you interact with money. And here's why. It's because he cares for you. And God wants money to be a blessing in your life rather than a constant source of stress. So can I just ask you to just do an inventory in your own life right now? Is money more a blessing right now? Or is it a constant source of stress? And there's no bad answer to that, only an honest one. And if, if it's more of a curse right now or more of a source of stress, then we, this is an opportunity for us to say, you know what, God, I need to invite you into my financial world. I need to take you at your word. So I wanna look at Luke chapter 12 
And in it, we find a conversation that Jesus has with a young man that um, I actually identify with. As I read through this, I thought, man, I could so easily be this young man right here. And I don't know, maybe many of you can relate to him as well. The setting here is that Jesus is teaching and some young guy interrupts Jesus' message to invite him into a family uh, drama that's going on. It says, then someone called from the crowd, teacher, please tell my brother to divide our father's estate with me. So uh, use your imagination. There is a family argument going on about money. Imagine that. I know that's probably never touched any one of you, but this is what's happening theoretically in this guy's life. I love Jesus' response. Friend, who made me a judge over you to decide such things as that? Translation, leave me out of your family drama. I don't wanna have anything to do with this. And yet at the same time, Jesus could see the thing behind the thing. Jesus could see what's going on in this young man's heart, which prompts him to say this in verse 15. He says, I want you to beware, guard against every kind of greed. Well, I thought greed was just greed. I thought there was just one kind of greed. Like I see something and I want it. And Jesus goes, no, there's actually all kinds of greed. Life is not measured by how much you own. To which if I was this young man, I think that my response would have been, whoa, 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 hold up. Who said anything about greed? I just want what's mine. I just want what's fair. This is what's owed to me. I, I don't think that that's greed. I think that's justice. And see, that's part of the issue is that for the vast majority of us, like we don't see ourselves as greedy. Like other sins in our lives, we can very clearly see. But greed oftentimes gets camouflaged. We can see it in others, but we very rarely see it in ourselves. And here's the reason why. It's because we're always comparing, whether you realize it or not, we're always comparing to others. We compare uh, clothing, we compare vacations, we compare square footage, we're always comparing. But here's the deal, we always compare up, we very rarely compare down. And so as we compare up, we, we can recognize others as, as greed. And we say, well, well, you know, they don't need that much. And it's very easy to sort of offer a, a judgment because this greed is a subjective sliding scale in all of our lives. And Jesus picked up on some traces of greed in this guy's heart. And he said, hey, beware of all kinds because it's camouflaged. And he cares too much to just sort of let it go. Because right here, Jesus could have launched into a lecture about finances, but he didn't do that. Instead, Jesus chooses to tell a story, which is the language of the human heart. And here's the story in verse 16. He says, hey, a rich man had a fertile farm that produced fine crops. And he said to himself, what should I do? I don't have room for all my crops, which I don't know about you. That sounds like a great problem to have. Sort of sounds like the American dream, right? Like I have so much that I don't know what to, to do with it all. And here's how the guy was reasoning it in verse 18. He said, I know I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. Then I'll have room enough to store all my wheat and other goods. And you know, that's sort of what we do, right? There's a word for this, it's called upgrade. And that's like what we do. You start in a little starter home and then you earn some equity in it and then you upgrade. You, you start with the job at a certain pay rate and then you, you upgrade. We upgrade from the 60 inch television to the 70 inch. We upgrade from the Toyota to the BMW. That's like sort of what we do. 
And there's nothing wrong with it inherently, but we've got to ask ourselves, like, why? What's that doing to our hearts as we upgrade? And is it entirely necessary? As you know that uh, the average home in America in 1950 was 1,000 square feet. In 1970, it was 1,500 square feet. In the year 2000, it was 2,200 square feet. In the last 30 years, the size of families in general is down 25%, but the size of houses are up 50%. So it shows us it's not an amount of like practical need. It's just that we just keep upgrading and upgrading and upgrading. Bigger barns. And what's wrong with that? And listen to me very clearly. Nothing is wrong with that, at least initially. But verse 19 shows us the problem. The man in the story says, I'll sit back and I'll say to myself, my friend, which is kind of weird, actually, if you think about it, calling yourself your friend, you have enough stored away for years to come. Here's the problem. Now take it easy. Take it easy. Now that's more than just enjoying retirement. All right, that's not what that means. That is money is my functional savior. It's what I'm leaning on. It's what is actually helping me to actually calm down and de-stress my life. I'm, I'm gonna take it easy in every way. Eat, drink, and be merry. So upgrading isn't the problem. That's the problem. And that had actually been happening long before this guy could take it easy. See, this reveals how money, the flow of money had shaped his heart and his quote unquote enough had become a license for his wealth to just become all about him. And it revealed what he was truly putting his trust in. But see, here's the thing is that that is such a fragile thing to put your trust in because easy come and easy go. And you can't hold on to it forever, eventually, it's gonna leave. And that's what Jesus is getting at in verse 20. He says, but God said to him, you fool, you will die this very night. Then who will get everything you worked for? Now I wanna be really clear here. You should not interpret that passage as God is gonna kill him for having money, all right? That's not what God is saying. God is trying to remind him of how brief life is. He says, man, life is so brief and it could be tonight that you're gonna pass away and then who's gonna, who's gonna get all this money that you've been working so hard for and that you have been saving up for? Now he's reminding us of this truth that we already know, but we often don't want to admit is that it's really not our money. Like we're just temporarily managers of it, that eventually all of the stuff that we've been acquiring in our lifetime, somebody else is gonna have sooner or later. So we might as well get our mindset and our heart settled around it now while we're interacting with it. In verse 21, he says, yes, a person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not have a rich relationship with God. And I would define rich relationship with God as um, trusting God in every area of your life, not just certain segments of it. And our financial life is usually the last one that we wanna give up to him. And having a rich relationship with God says, God, I trust you. I trust that what you have to say, those five principles I laid out a little earlier, that they really do work and that they really are for me. And so I'm just gonna invite you into my life, into this area. And then Jesus sees this as a teachable moment for the rest of his disciples who were sort of listening in on this. 
And he gets right to the root of it in verse 22. He says, then turning to his disciples, Jesus said, that is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear for life is more than food and your body more than clothing. Look at the ravens. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for God feeds them. And you are far more valuable to him than any birds. Here it is, verse 25. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, then what's the use of worrying over bigger things? And Jesus just hit the nail on the head. That really what it, this comes down to, for most of us, it isn't greed, it's worry. See, worry can turn into greed. Like we're worried we're not gonna have enough. And so eventually it turns into hoarding or it turns into greeting. And Jesus gets very beneath into the soil of it. And he says, hey, listen, I know what this is all about. This is you're fearful if you're gonna have enough especially in a year like the one that we're having. Because I know for a fact that a number of you have lost jobs. And I know that some of you, your pay's been cut back. And for a number of you, your businesses are being hurt. And for a number of you, you're not sure what the next couple of months is gonna hold as we walk through all of this. And with Christmas right around the corner, and it's so easy for us to just begin to become fearful. And I know what that feels like. I mean, this last... Uh, spring when everything initially got shut down I mean I didn't know what was going to happen and immediately I started to go back and review our budget like I I'm brushing up my resume I'm following our kids around the house shutting lights off behind them I'm like I don't know what in the world is going to happen and I I it was very clear to me that I'd been putting way too much of my trust in my ability to provide financially for my family. And it got to this place where I'm just like, what am I really worshiping anyway? And I know that somebody needs to hear this today because some of you are very money-minded. Like you're, you're the one that runs the budget in the family. and You're the one that's running around chasing down receipts after everybody else. And, and families need you and want you so much. But listen to me, there is a fine line between good financial planning and budgeting and worry. And those lines often get blurred. It's, it's often so difficult. I would also say this, that there's others of us that we're just kind of like, oh, I'm just trusting God. And really you're just being financially irresponsible. Can I get a good amen, right? And, and uh, we kind of know, know who falls on that, that kind of a line. I think all of us have got to recognize that those extremes of those things, we've got to sort of come back into the center and we've got to say, you know, God, you've entrusted us with these resources. You say you're going to provide for us. And so we wanna trust you in this area of our lives that is so, so personal. There's a reason why we call it personal finances and why we get squeamish anytime we talk about it because it's so personal. But Jesus says this in verse 31. He goes, seek the kingdom of God above all else. In other words, that's the number one priority. And he will give you everything you need. And that is written as a promise, not a suggestion. Now notice he doesn't say he'll give you everything you want, but he says he'll give you everything you need and he'll provide. So, so what, what does it look like to seek the kingdom of God first? And I would say seeking the kingdom of God first means that you trust what he says in his word about good financial management above your feeling on it. 
that you just invite him into your financial world through these five principles that we've spelled out and God will make sure that your needs are met. Now, this sometimes gets misapplied and maybe you've heard this taught in such a way before that if you sow a seed of faith, then God will bless your socks off with something much, much more. And God certainly has the ability to do that, but it's no guarantee. It's not like you're just like, well, God's obligated now to give me something uh, three times the amount of what I gave to him. No, God certainly honors our faith. But what he's asking more than anything else is that we would on a consistent basis, trust him with these five principles of good money management throughout the duration of our earning lives from the first job that you had to the last job that you had. So let me just walk through it real, real, real quickly. And you can take a screenshot of this, write this down. Cause I think this is good conversation starter for your life group, for your families. Maybe you're engaged to be married right now. You're doing some financial planning. It's great to talk about with your teenagers, but here's the, one, the principle of good money management. How should I earn it? And the Bible would just simply say, earn it honestly. Don't try to cut corners. Don't try, obviously, like don't steal, all that sort of a thing. Don't look for get rich quick schemes. Just, just earn it honestly. Deuteronomy 8.18 says, remember the Lord your God for it is he who gives you the ability to produce wealth. And I know that a number of you, like you're just gifted at making money. Like everything you touch, it just like, it turns to gold. Like you've started businesses, you've done really well. Be careful because you can become proud, you can become proud in that. And I would just simply say, who gave you the ability to do that? Well, God did. So earn it, earn it honestly. How should I save and invest it? The Bible would simply say this, gradually. Just save it gradually. Um, don't look to uh, get rich quick because it'll probably ruin your life because your heart won't be able to handle it. This is why you can just Google this. Most people that win the lottery within six months, their lives are ruined because they didn't know how to, how to manage it. And when you save it gradually, 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 your heart can be shaped right alongside that. Proverbs 13 verse 11 says, dishonest money dwindles away, but whoever gathers money little by little makes it grow. It's this wonderful thing called compound interest and it just works for you. Here's the, here's the third principle. How should I give it? And the Bible would just simply say one word, generously. In Corinthians, it says, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. That's premeditated. It's pre-planned, not reluctantly and not under compulsion. In other words, like somebody's gonna guilt you into it. Why? For God loves a cheerful giver. And if you give out of obligation, it takes the cheer out of it. And so God wants you to give generously. He wants you to be in a position where you can bless the lives of other people. Here's the fourth principle. How should I spend it? And the Bible would just simply say, spend it wisely. Proverbs 21, 20, the wise have wealth and luxury, but fools spend whatever they get. And especially in our day and age of uh, technology and social media, where constant advertisements come catered to you right to your device, it's amazing. Like, like, did you know, like your phone, like is listening in on your conversations. I was having a conversation on Friday with my son about a certain kind of hoodie and on my Facebook scroll, it like popped up. Cause like they know, right? They're, they're catering right to these things that uh, you don't necessarily need, but maybe you want, it's called like an impulse buy. The Bible says, hey, listen, spend it, spend it wisely. Don't just, don't just buy something on a whim. And then the last principle would be, how should I enjoy it? And you should be able to enjoy it. If you've done all those four former principles, man, you should be able to enjoy it. And, he just, and the Bible just says, enjoy it carefully. 
In Ecclesiastes 5.10, it says, those who love money will never have enough. How meaningless to think that wealth brings true happiness. And uh, just ask somebody who's made a lot of money if it's truly made them happy. And if they're being honest, then they're gonna say no, because that's not where it's found. See, when we can handle our personal finances through the lens of the kingdom of God, which can be found in those five principles, then it begins to shape my heart in the direction that I want it to go. And as a church, we, we wanna help you with this. In fact, the first quarter of next year, we're gonna be offering a five-week online class on God's principles of just good money management. And so you can go to tpcc.org slash finance class and just uh, let us know of your interest in that. And when registration opens up, we'll let you know about the class that's gonna happen in the first quarter of next year. And I wanna finish up this passage in Luke 12 because Jesus gets very pastoral. And he says this, so don't be afraid little flock for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. In other words, I think at times we wonder if we really trust God with these principles of money management, if he will, really will provide or if he's gonna leave us high and dry. And Jesus is saying, no, no, no. God wants to make sure your needs are met. So therefore, now you're in a position, verse 33, to sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven and the purses of heaven will never get old or develop holes. Your treasure will be safe. No thief can steal it. No moth can destroy it because wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be because your heart always follows your money, never the, way around, uh, the other way around. So wherever you want your heart to be, send your money there. Because as it flows in and as it does some things and provides for some things, it's shaping your heart. And we can trust him in this area of our lives. And I think that's the biggest thing is that the reason why Jesus talks about money so often, the reason why he gives us these principles is he, he knows there's a number of financial traps that we can all fall into. And he, and he wants our heart. He doesn't need our money. He wants our heart. And really he wants our trust where we would be willing to say, God, I, I'm willing to trust you in this area of my life. You know, when my kids were really, really little, one of my favorite things to do with them is just to take them and just to throw them up in the air. I mean, and I would catch them. I mean, I, I wouldn't just like, I mean, that, that was a part of it. But but uh, when they were like really little, like before they knew that what could happen, like they loved it. Like I would throw them up in the air and they'd get this big smile on their face and they would laugh. Like they had no idea the danger that was around them until they started to get a little bit older, until they, they fell a couple times, until they realized maybe what was at stake and that if I didn't catch them and, and it was really gonna hurt, and then they would start to panic a little bit. It was one of these deals. I remember the very first time I started to take one of them and I started to throw them up in the air and they like grabbed my wrists. Like they, they wouldn't let me. And I remember just thinking, hey, uh, don't, you, you, don't you trust daddy? And they would say, well, yes. I'm like, well, are you gonna let me throw you? No. Because <laughs> it's not really trust unless you let go. And I think right now that's the thing that God is asking of every single one of us. And so here's what I wanna ask you to do as you apply whatever needs to be applied to your life from the teaching today is what area of everything we just talked about do you need to trust God in? And maybe it's the earning part, maybe it's the investing part, maybe it's the giving part, the spending, the enjoying, whatever it is. What, what area right now are you holding on just a little too tight 
And God says, I need you to trust me in this area. And are you willing to let go? Are you willing to say, I trust you, I take you at your word? Because oftentimes when we're able to get to that place where we're able to let go and trust God, that will actually uh, spark a, 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 a catalyst in some spiritual or emotional growth in our lives. And so today, I just want us as we respond to God, as we sing and as we worship at all of our campuses and online to recognize that as money flows in, it shapes some things. And as it flows out, how do you want it to shape your heart? And you can trust God in this area of your life. Let me pray for us. Father, we come to you right now. And I know that uh, this is an area for some of us we think an awful lot about. And for others of us, maybe we don't think about it enough. And so today I pray that we would be willing to uh, take you at your word, that we'd be willing to become vulnerable enough, uh, enough to say, God, what area of my financial world do I need to trust you more in? Maybe I've been leaning too much on my own logic, my own reasoning, my own emotion. And today I wanna trust you in this area. And right now it's a tough year. Right now, I know there's many people that have lost income. I know right now we're getting ready to go into Christmas and the holidays. This is the perfect time for us to apply this to our lives to say, we wanna trust you. We, we wanna go on a faith adventure with you in this area. And so today we declare that, not just by what we think, not just by what we feel, not just by what we say, but by what we do. And so Father, we give this to you right now. We thank you so much in Jesus' name.